Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFist podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 222, and today's guest is John Gannon, co-founder and general partner of Going VC. Landing a job in venture capital is challenging, and one of the main reasons why is based on the scarcity of positions available. This stat might be a little bit old, but at one point, the number of professional athletes in the U.S. was about equal to the number of VC positions, so pretty crazy when you paint the picture that way. To top it off, there's no defined career path on how to get there, and oftentimes the jobs in the VC industry are not advertised. However, this has changed in recent years due to the availability of information, and John was one of the first people to really provide a deep level of insight into how to land a job in venture capital, and he also started aggregating the positions available. So if you type the search firm venture capital jobs or something related in Google, John's blog, which started in 2008, appears on the first page of the search results. Fast forward to today, John and his co-founder Arno Niazi have taken this expertise to build Going VC, a VC education and career acceleration program to help you land that ideal job in the industry. The program already has hundreds of members and alumni. Oh, and one would think that this is a full-time job, but believe it or not, John also has a very successful career in product management for tech companies. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like tips and advice on time management, which is something that he needs to be very good at, John's background growing up and a look at how he was able to break into the VC industry, a deep dive into his professional career at companies like Turbonomic, Amazon Web Services, and DigitalOcean, the full background story on how John started his blog and started aggregating jobs in venture capital, how he went on to start going VC, the impact it has made, plus what people can expect by going through the program, how a VC firm is structured by each role, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, this week's episode is sponsored by MarketMuse, a content intelligence platform that sets the standard for content quality. Their AI-powered software enables companies to create predictably better content at scale that increases traffic and engagement, improves productivity, and drives revenue. Get more out of your content with packages starting at just $79 a month, plus you can get 10% off select packages by using our code FIZ20 at checkout. Go to marketmuse.com to get started. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with John. John, thanks so much for joining us. Keith, thanks so much. So excited to be here. Really appreciate it. And obviously very familiar with Venture Fizz over the years and everything you built. So it's really cool to, to be here talking to you today. Yeah, likewise. I'm, I'm excited to talk to you. Uh, I feel like we go way back, but we've never had like an in-depth conversation like this. So I'm excited to learn firsthand about all the different things that you've accomplished and um, you know how you got started with these different initiatives. And that was the uptake I had about you. It's like, wow, John has this whole persona of these different things that he does, whether it's investing or helping people get a job into venture capital, but you also have a, your own career. So there's lots of pieces that keep you occupied throughout the day, never mind you know any personal commitments. So um, that made me think like, John must be a master of time management because <laughs> you've got a lot going on from being a product manager, operator, entrepreneur, investor, advisor, and more. So how do you manage your time? And what, did, what advice would you give to others that kind of have a lot of balls in the air? Yeah, I appreciate the question. And I love to talk about this stuff that's not necessarily known for productivity specifically, but with the things that I, I work on both professionally and personally without having that. I guess, ability, I, it wouldn't really be possible to do a lot of these things. And I think there's there's really three things I would call out that I think are important in terms of what helps keep me productive. And I think these are things that are actually very readily transferable in terms of other people being able to use these three things as well. So the first would be that many years ago, when I say many, I don't know exactly, five, six, seven years ago, I hired someone to help me about five to 10 hours a month as a assistant. And so that person would help me with anything from scheduling meetings and appointments for me, both professional meetings and doctor's appointments, things like that. And then also helping me out with things related to my VC careers blog as well. So could be updating content, could be scouring different sites for information for us to repost on the blog. It could be a variety of different things. And so I have a, I guess I would almost call it a, a thesis 
around this topic specifically, which is I think that anyone making say six figures, uh, that's, that's not a hard number, but sort of a rough number, but anyone making six figures should really have someone uh, helping them out five to 10 hours a month. And the, the reason for that simply is if you're, you're making six figures, your time has a certain value. And if you get more time back for yourself to maybe you want to work on your own side projects, maybe you just want to be more effective at work, or maybe you just want more personal time, more family time, right? Which is a, which is a great a great thing as well. And so that five to 10 hours a month that you free up, it's things that you frankly are not adding a lot of value to. Like, I don't need to be the one who like calls the doctor to make an appointment, for example. I don't necessarily need to be the one who is uh, making copy edits in a blog post. And so that's really where that that all comes in. And, and I was really influenced by the four hour work week many years ago when I first read it. I was going to say, this sounded exactly like Tim Ferriss's advice. Yeah. 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 And, and that sort of inspired me. And, and I started to kind of experiment with virtual assistants and you know, fast forward to where we are now. And I, I actually work with many people and I, I wouldn't necessarily call them virtual assistants now because of some of the scale that I've, I've built in terms of my, my community and, and sort of the audience that, that is interested in what I work on. I'm now actually, uh, I hire people directly from folks who are subscribers to my newsletter, for example. And that's been interesting from the perspective that those are folks who already kind of understand what I'm working on and what I'm doing and they're excited about it. And so I think overall, it, it's more of a, it's just a more just productive situation where the, the folks I'm working with are actually, they're getting a lot of value, not in terms of the work they're doing as the, the full value, but, but actually being a part of the network and, and getting some real experience in terms of things that are really sort of venture focused, if you will. So that's the big one. I said there were three things. The other two I'll make quick. Uh, one is, uh, or the second thing is, I definitely do say no a lot, uh, particularly around requests around coffees, hey, let's hop on a Zoom and, and things like that. And, and I think I, I probably do miss some opportunities because I, I sort of deflect a lot of that those inbound requests. But the thing is, if I didn't deflect those things, I, I wouldn't actually be able to work on the other things that I, I'm working on. And, and I have obviously limited time with, with the, the various balls in the air. So I, I do say no a lot. And it's, uh, it's something that I think is tough to do, right? I want to say yes. The reason I do what I do is because I like to help people. And uh, yeah, so advice on saying no, because that is hard. I, I struggle with it. So do you just kind of have like your go-to statement of like, I, I would love to, but unfortunately, like, do you have like a, a go-to? Yeah, I don't have a, a template per se. It, it really depends on the situation. And I do try to be helpful. A good example would actually be this morning. I sent an email to someone. They were concerned about, hey, I don't, I'm not sure I'll, I'll be able to make enough money working in venture. And so I don't know if it's, it's a good career path for me. I'm in student debt, et cetera. And so they had asked, hey, could, could I hop on a call with you? And instead I sent them a link to, the venture capital salary survey post that I have. Yeah. So should be able to solve their problem. Right. And they, they, they walk away happy, I think, right? Because mm-hmm. that's the information they really need. And then I, 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 I'm not jumping on a, a call for half an hour to an hour to, to, to kind of cover that stuff. To cover the same thing that's in the blog post, because this is the data that you've collected. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. I, I find another thing that I try to do as well is sometimes I think folks will default to, hey, let's do a call. And so I'll respond back with something like, hey, it's, it's hard for me to do a call right now because of X, Y, and Z. And the X, Y, and Zs you sort of already talked about, right? Like a lot of the different balls in the air. But mm-hmm. if you want, we can get started by email. And then if a call becomes necessary, like we can, we can do a call. Uh, I'm not uh, opposed to ever getting on a call or a Zoom. It's just more about there's uh there's actually a lot you can do over email when both folks are motivated and so that's that's worked pretty well as well and the the third thing i did say there were three things is uh just having a frankly a really a supportive partner spouse family i could could not 
really do any of these things without that. Um, and so just really blessed from that perspective. And I think that that is, especially for anyone who is married, has kids, if, if that part of your life is not in, in good shape and you're not doing your best to, to invest in that part of your life, uh, even if you're a super busy person, then you're, you're, it's going to make it very hard to, to do the other things and not create a lot of, of tension. And it's tough. I mean, I, I, I get sort of upset with myself sometimes when I'm on a Saturday morning, when I'm still doing work stuff and I try to keep the weekends completely free. And, and I am able to do that a, a fair amount, which is great, but um, sometimes I just can't. But then I think about from a flexibility perspective, my daughter's playing soccer at 3.30 on a Tuesday, like I can go to that, right? right. That, that's not an issue. And yeah. so that, that's the trade-off. And, and, and sometimes I just, uh, sometimes I, it, it's hard for me to kind of work through that, but I, but, but I think overall it, it, it all works. Well, that's great advice. And it's definitely things that people struggle with. And the, the third point you made, I, I can say, I nailed that one. My wife is incredibly supportive and she, like, she knows on a Saturday, I have things to do typically, but I space it so that it's not intrusive to the family time. So, um, all right, well, let's rewind the clock. So where, where, where did you grow up? Like, what were you like as a child? Yeah. So I know a lot of your roots for what you're working on are based in the Boston area. And that's actually where I'm from. So I was born in Boston and grew up in first Woburn and then Burlington. And what I was like as a, as a child, I was, I was definitely pretty into reading computers, probably not a shock given the, the things that I, that I work on. I was also a rabid sports fan, which has sort of fallen off over the years. So they just don't have the time to really follow my beloved Red Sox or any of the other local team. And from a, a sort of work and jobs perspective, it was a really interesting time, sort of mid nineties when the internet was really taking off. And I uh, started with, with jobs that were not in tech. My first job is literally at a place called The Fish House in Massachusetts. We did fresh fried, big broiled, didn't matter. And I worked in the back room and wash pans and cook food and mop floors. And it was, uh, you know, it was, was not the, the, the easiest job. And I, I think looking back, it was a good first job to have because it definitely gives you, gives you some perspective. What ended up happening is there was a local internet company that was called uh, TIAC, the Internet Access Company. And it was one of the major internet providers in the Northeast. And it just so happened that I, because of my interest in computers and in high school, we got a laptop, I bought a modem, bought a book about how to run Unix commands. And I got an account with the local ISP. And it just so happened that I ended up reaching out to one of the people who worked there, uh, just starting to talk to him. And like, strangely enough, the, the, the person who literally ran like all of the technical operations was, uh, I think at that point, a 15 year old kid. So he was managing this, this basically this, this huge network servers, like everything, just, just, a, just really talented guy. And we, we actually became personal friends. And through that, I got a job at the internet access company and I started in tech support and then moved into technical operations. So servers and networks and, and things like that. And that's really the, the place that kind of launched my, my tech career. That's awesome. I love that story. Uh, 15 year old running all the technical operations for the one of the largest ISPs in the Northeast. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you went on to study computer science at Penn. And then uh, after school, you were getting some great foundational experience that uh, it was science, right? Yeah. Yeah. So coming out of, of Penn and then sort of senior year, they, they have a lot of companies coming on campus to do recruiting. And so I went through that, that whole process and I, it really came down to, uh, I had two offers as I was going to graduation. Uh, one was with Goldman Sachs to join their uh, IT team. And the other one was with this company, like you said, Science, that was kind of an internet startup. They were basically building platforms, applications, for both very large businesses like Chase Manhattan Bank, but also venture-backed startups. 
who would go out and raise some money on an idea as was typical in, in 1993, 94, 95. And, and science would, would actually go in and build not only the technology, but, but shape the business around it as well. And the decision point for me, it was really came down to one question. I asked the person at Goldman, hey, how long will it be before I get to actually do real work? I actually get to touch production systems. And he said, oh, it's probably gonna be about a year. And when I asked the same question to the folks at Science, they're like, oh, we'll give you the, the root password, which is sort of like the, that allows you to do everything on the system on day one. So I was like, so <laughs> let's do that. So I went to Science. Well, that's a good choice. I remember that era very well. It was around the time I, I got into recruiting. So it was 98 when I got into recruiting and we were staffing up all the next generation services companies like Scient, Viant, IXL, Razorfish. Uh, so we, I spent my time just cold calling out of the old school, you know, management consulting firm. So the, you know, consulting arms of, well, it was Anderson at the time, then Accenture, Deloitte, Bearing Point, when it spun out of KPMG. So anyways, I was bringing them, recruiting them out of those firms and into the next generation science and science of the world. So. There were definitely a lot of those uh, shops around and a lot of consolidation that happened. And, and some of them are kind of kicking around in various forms today, although science, uh, at least the brand name didn't live on. Mm -hmm. So what did you do after that? So after science, I was, well, I was at science and sort of the, the bust happened. And I remember the, uh, the, 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 the day they laid a lot of people off and it was sort of like they, they had one group of people go to one room, then another group of people go to the other room. And one room was basically told that you, you don't have a job anymore. And, and the room I was in, uh, fortunately, we, we were, were still part of the company. But that was a, sort of a wake-up call. And sort of around that time, it was actually the person who I, uh, I interned with when I was in Philadelphia he was working for a financial services firm and I was uh, an intern for him working on like systems and network stuff. And he had gone and left Philadelphia, moved to the Bay Area to, to actually go work for science. And he's actually the person who helped me get in the door there. And then he got a job offer to move to LA and become the chief technology officer for foxsports.com. And so he went over there as the CTO and he, he sort of recruited me in to, to come in and, and basically run uh, technical operations for them. And at that point, I think I was like 23, a couple of years out of school and didn't have really anything uh, that was keeping me in New York per se. Um, my, my now wife, who I was dating at the time was like, yeah, sure, you know, I'll go to LA. So, so up, up we went and, and moved to LA and, and spent a, a couple of years there at foxsports.com and, and built it from, from scratch, basically, all the way through launch and, and beyond. And then from there, you were early on for VMware, right? Yeah, so also from a sort of life changes perspective, my girlfriend, again, now we're, we're married and have, have kids, et cetera, but she wanted to go to graduate school. And so she applied to a bunch of places. And one of the places she got into was NYU. And so I knew that we were going to be moving. And in 2003, the remote work wasn't really a thing. So I, I started kind of looking around and, and it just so happened, again, I have to give credit to science. There was an alumni email list and I saw a note come to that list that was basically looking for someone who... <laughs> didn't mind being in front of customers, new Unix systems, networking, and could travel. <laughs> and they, they sort of didn't really care where you were. So in, in that company, it happened to be VMware. And I had never heard of, of I, I had heard of them in the sense that they had a, a product for people's laptops and, and things like that. But it, I had no idea sort of what the company would become. It, I, it was really just the fact that I needed a job where I could move to New York. And it sounded interesting. And, and I didn't really overthink it and, and went with it. And I was, at the time, the company, I think, was less than 300 employees. And then I believe it was a couple of years later, we got acquired by EMC, uh, the big uh, Boston-based uh, data storage vendor, et cetera, for, I think it was like $635 million. And I stayed there for four years. You know, the company was basically doubling year over year, which 
is uh, it, it just an experience that you, you don't get anywhere else because the company's growing that fast. Just there's there's not enough people to do all the things. And if you sort of hang on to that rocket ship, you'll get a lot of great opportunities. So I started as really in the trenches, visiting customers literally all over the world and helping them use the software that really not many people had expertise in back in 2003, 2004, because it was just, just really getting started. And then when I left to go to business school, I was running the Northeast region professional services team. So basically the team of, of folks that was delivering these very large VMware implementations to big companies like Merck and, and other sort of Fortune 500 types, because the business was just, again, it was really taking off. So you highlighted, you went back to, to B school to Columbia. So, so what, what prompted that decision? Yeah, I, I had always, uh, a couple of years after undergrad, I, for whatever reason, I don't know why, I was just like, oh, I want to go back to school and get a master's. And I, I, had, uh, I, I had a false start. Um, I had actually applied to MIT Media Lab and was really kind of excited about that program, didn't get in there. But then I decided, okay, well, I think an MBA would be interesting. So while I was at VMware, I applied to, to several, several business schools and Really, the, the goal was I would either start my own company while I was in business school, or the other option was I would work my way into venture capital because that was something that I had just gained an interest in over the, over the years. And so when I, I got into Columbia Business School, I started at Columbia. It was basically in that first month where I sort of Took a step back and looked and, and, and basically said, okay, uh, what wh wh what really is the right next move for me? And based on where I was in my personal life, et cetera, starting to think about uh, having a family, all those things, the like startup founder thing just seemed like probably not a great thing to, to, to do at that point in time. And so I just went all in on trying to break into venture capital. And so I was able to spend the, the entire time of business school really focused exclusively on that, on that goal. And I think business school is actually a, a great place for someone who, if you know, really, if you know what you want to do going in, a lot of people actually don't, they just kind of apply because they're not sure what they want to do. But if you really know what you want to do going in, it's an amazing time because you you basically can structure your classes, your activities, everything to, to really push you towards whatever that, that goal is. And for me, it was was venture capital. So uh, I want to do a quick side step because uh, this is related to what we're going to talk about in length. So uh, do you think attending B school is um, something that you would encourage people to do if they're looking to launch a career in, in venture capital? So. Uh, for business school and related to using it as a as sort of a lever or a way to boost your chances to get an adventure, I think it really, frankly, depends on your background going in. And then also the, the school that you are looking at, there's a certainly a critical mass of folks who have gone to, in particular, Harvard, Stanford, Wharton. And I think some of the, the challenges that the industry has around uh, diversity and, and inclusiveness kind of kind of stem, unfortunately, from that, that kind of that, that critical mass, not those people specifically, but just that like, if there's a lot of Harvard or Stanford people working in a certain industry, they tend to know people from Harvard and Stanford. And those are the folks that they tend to pull into to the roles that they that they have. But um, but but for better, or for worse, if you get an MBA from Harvard, you're going to have a lot better chance of breaking in. Right. It just it is a fact. If you are thinking, oh, I want to go and get an MBA because there are certain skills that I'm missing, there's a lot of other ways to pick up those skills. And so I would, you know, highly encourage you rather than going to uh, a, a business school that's that's maybe a, a little bit sort of um, lower down in the rankings, I would say just pick up those skills. Like there's plenty of, of cohort-based education, online education, you can you can pick up those skills through that. But with VC, the network is so important, both in terms of being able to find interesting investment opportunities, um, as well as just getting your foot in the door for, for jobs. And I think 
you know, one of the things we're trying to do, what I'm trying to do with a lot of things I work on at the VC Crits blog and now going VC is, is really to try to, to, to sort of broaden the opportunity and really open the doors so that, hey, maybe you didn't go to Stanford, maybe you didn't go to Harvard, but you could actually be a great venture capitalist, right? You may have a certain different way of thinking. You may have certain types of companies that you are able to to sort of bring to the table and that are high quality from an investment perspective, right? Uh, and and also with the nature of remote work and distributed teams, et cetera, there's all sorts of interesting startup companies popping up everywhere, right? It's not just New York. It's not just Boston. It's not just San Francisco. Well, you were successful in landing a position. You met your goal. I mean, you had a, a couple of uh, like internship type of things at Highland and Chart Venture Partners, but then you ended up as an associate at L Capital Partners. So you, you hit your goal. So, so what was that experience like? Yeah, the, the, the entire business school experience was really me focused on how do I break in. <laughs> and I, there wasn't really a lot at that point in time written about this topic. Now there's a zillion posts about how to get a job in venture capital and, and every sort of permutation of that, that journey. But back then it was really, okay, how do I get some, some actual experience in venture? Can I get a firm to, to sort of sign up to, to let me spend time with them and, and also to be able to put their name on my resume. And so I would say that the, the, the sort of break or the big break for me was in Columbia Business School, and I think probably in a lot of business schools, you have the ability to craft an independent study. So they give you, in essence, like I think it's like a class or two across the whole program, where if you want, you can basically take that 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 class. You can get an industry sponsor to to basically say that they'll they'll sponsor you from a just a perspective of like letting you do a project for them. And so the business gets some kind of a project or some kind of an output, and you get some experience, and also you get the, the school credit. So basically, you don't have to like take that class, right? So it's very focused on your goals. And so I had, because of my past experience in VMware, had been reaching out to, to different VCs. And there was uh, a VC at uh, Highland Capital Partners, uh, the person's name was uh, Neil uh, Okio Grosso, who was about a year or so into his gig there. He was a Wharton MBA grad. And so just kind of connected with him on the basis of him looking at similar sectors to where I had experience. And then that sort of uh, eventually turned into an introduction to uh, one of the senior partners there, Peter Bell. Uh, and, you know, basically uh, offered to, to do kind of a market map and kind of an investment thesis development around virtualization. And they obviously would get this work. They didn't necessarily for them to pay me because I was getting the school credit. So it just kind of worked out well. And so I did that project with them. And that for sure was the thing that caught Chart Ventures' eye when I applied because that was the most recent thing I had done. It was at the top of my resume and the brand recognition was strong. So that, uh, that, that really was kind of a pivotal uh, point in my quest, I guess, to get a, a venture capital job. And it also reminds me that the venture capital world and the startup world, it's really a very long-term uh, game in a sense. So it turned out about uh, two years or so later, roughly two years later from when I had started that venture capital job search, you know, I went and I worked in venture capital for a year. I got that job. And then the 2009 recession hit and most venture capital firms were not fun places to be at that point. Yeah, Sequoia and Capital, so, RIP, good times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and it just, for, for many firms, including the firm I was at, there just wasn't going to be a future there. Yeah. And so I actually randomly, when I started to put out feelers to different folks, I emailed Peter Bell. And coincidentally, Peter had just funded a team of five PhDs who were building some really interesting enterprise software and they needed in essence uh, a first business hire and so the, the the timing and the serendipity couldn't have been any better and that's what led to me going to turbonomic which at the time was called vm turbo right vm turbo yeah yeah so so yeah. the vmware was perfect experience because obviously you worked at the company and that's kind of what they were hooking their wagon to at the time it's evolved a lot since 
And I, when I saw, discovered that about your background, and that's what I love about doing these podcasts, because I just kind of get deep into someone's background. I'm like, wait a second. John was employee number one on the like that first business team hire for this company that just announced a massive acquisition by IBM that was, you know, in the media reports, not, you know, generated by IBM or Turbonomic, a 1.5 billion plus exit, depending on, you know, kind of what's, what's going to be the end result. So I was like, wow, what a nugget there. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, uh, you know, not uh, super close with the company. Just has been 10 plus years since I, I worked there, but I, I did see the news actually randomly on Twitter from, from someone that I, that I follow. And, this this would definitely be the year to exit in terms of the market is is just super hot and the company is doing really well right I think publicly they said they were doing over a hundred million in revenue yeah. so so company was it was a definitely a, a good business and the technology was extremely differentiated uh, there's a lot of different management software tools virtualization management cloud management but but this team the reason i joined the company is because when they explained to me what they were doing i said wow like this is actually different and oh by the way there's there, there's five phds who are building it so <laughs> now this was also another critical point in your career where you started to shift more towards product management um because then from there you went to aws yeah yeah so i i sort of when I was at VM uh, Turbonomic, I was responsible for a lot of things on the business side, but really one of the pieces was was product marketing. And so thinking about what is the product, how do we position it, how do we get people to know about it, et cetera. And so so that was sort of the first piece, I guess, of formal uh, kind of product management-like experience. Because product management and product marketing, a lot of times they kind of get lumped together, especially at smaller companies. And so that was really like where I got my first taste of it. And then when I went over to Amazon, I started at, at AWS and, and, and the role was, was not a product management role, but I worked super, super closely with the general manager and the product manager for their Elastic MapReduce business. So this was like a, back, we don't really say big data anymore, but it was like a big data solution. And I just uh, had a great time working with that team and, and, and product management at Amazon is, uh, is very, very strong. And so I just learned a lot from working with that team and how they looked at the business, how they looked at trade-offs and did that for a, a couple of years. And then there happened to be just through a, a personal connection, I found out that there was a, a role doing product management within amazon.com and specifically in uh, a completely different business than, than I had been used to in my career, which was their display ads business and working with a lot of the, the larger consumer packaged goods companies to help them optimize their advertising spend and performance on Amazon was a big part of, of that role. And so through kind of connecting to the hiring manager through uh, someone we both mutually knew is really how that interview process got started. And then I transferred over there and, and spent about a year there before I left to launch uh, what was my, my first startup. Okay, so, uh, but then you ended up at uh, DigitalOcean, another company that just has had you know, great success and you know, had a public offering this year. So um, talk about that. And then I wanna go down the path of kind of your whole entrepreneurial efforts, you know, cause this is like your career path of, working with companies yet you've always had this other side of you that's kind of like more the entrepreneurial side too so with digital ocean the the way that 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 sort of came about was so i left amazon i worked on my own startup it was actually uh, was uh, in the recruiting space and a couple of years in it just you know frankly it it wasn't working and and i got to the point financially where i, I growing family, et cetera, right? I, I, I needed to, to sort of make a, a tough decision to move over and really work on something else that was was going to to allow me to, to, to pay the bills, really, is what it came down to. And so through that time frame, I, I had reached out to a bunch of folks uh, in my network to, to kind of see what was out there. And through that startup, I had been connected with the COO and the chief people officer of DigitalOcean, and then 
separately, the uh, an advisor to the company who became the CTO of DigitalOcean was someone I had worked with at VMware and got to know a bit through that as well. And so I had a few connections into the company. And so what ended up happening is, is I went in and, and interviewed. I interviewed for product management and, and got the job. And so fast forward, I've, I've actually been there almost five years, which is the, the longest continuous stint I've ever had. And it's been, it's been fun. The, the people are, 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 are great. The, um, I've been able to work with great teams to launch two products. Uh, the most recent one is our marketplace, which has been live for a couple of years now. And uh, yeah, it's been interesting too, because when I joined, decisions were made in a meeting with the, the, the CEO and, and, and the VPs kind of all huddled in the CEO's conference room. And post IPO, obviously, there's a lot more moving pieces, a lot more teams. And it's, it's, it's obviously much more of a bigger company in the sense that it's it's IPO'd and it's public. And, and so it's just, it's kind of grown up in a way. And it's been interesting to be a part of that evolution each step of the way and see how the company changes over that that period of time. So that's been been really cool to, really cool to watch and, and also just experience because the job of a product manager becomes different at those different phases. When you're at a 250 person startup that, that has sort of the, the main breadwinning product and they're starting to launch new products, that's a very different place than several years down the road where you have a fully staffed product marketing team as well. And so the surface area that you work on as product manager, it, it shrinks because you've got a great product marketing team who can support you on a lot of the things around how do we communicate to this, this to the market? How do we position it, et cetera. All right. So along the way you started to do things on the side and like, so you started like your blog and which then became like a, a VC newsletter and a VC, like, you know, job listings. So when did that all start? Cause I was going through the archives of the blog and it looked like 2008 was the first comment that I could track, but I wasn't sure exactly when this started. Yeah, you're about right on that. So I got out of, I graduated Columbia business school and I, I, I stood up the blog soon after that in, in 2008, that was when I, when I graduated. And so really the whole impetus to that, there, there was no, <laughs> there was no grand plan. It was just, this was a hard job search. I learned a lot of stuff. I found a lot of interesting information. Let me put it up and make it available to people. Right. And, and this was not my first foray, foray into blogging. Um, during business school, I actually had a blog where I blogged all about my business school experience. And, and that, the blog from a traffic perspective, it wasn't, I wasn't getting a ton of traffic, but the thing that really hooked me was that I would get these comments from people on the blog that, that were like clearly reading and getting a lot of value out of it. And I would also bump into people who I would maybe offhand mention, oh, you know, I run this blog, blah, blah. And they're, wait, you, you know, you're, um, my 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 blogging moniker was J Term Johnny because I was in the January term for for uh, uh, for uh, for Columbia. So that was really where I got that bug, and I saw the sort of the the, the power and the fulfillment actually that that I could get from that. Because I've always been a person who loves to like I love to give career advice. I love to help people find jobs. I love to help people from like a network connecting perspective. So it was like very unsurprising i guess looking back at that i would be really excited about that so yeah that, that that experience really when i got out of business school and then i was like okay i'll just like stand this blog up like super the design actually as of recording is the same as it was in 2008 and it's basically just a list of links and it wasn't actually until a few years later that i launched the newsletter and i launched actually having job postings on there and and actually the job postings adding those was really what it, what created the growth. Uh, apparently people didn't necessarily want as much career advice as I was giving them. They just wanted like a list of jobs. So I gave the people what they wanted and, and things started to grow really quickly. Although I do appreciate, and, and I, I, people do, uh, they do look at the advice, they do read that stuff, but the thing that drives traffic is actually the jobs, which you probably, you probably know as well, because I know you have a, a job well, for it. Yeah, I mean that's what we do. We're we're jobs, and we've evolved yeah. a lot. But you know, from it just 
learning about your story and then hearing it, it just does remind me of how VentureFizz just kind of started as this thing where I'm like, I don't know, I aggregate information about the Boston tech scene for people and maybe they'll find it interesting because I'm using this information already as a recruiter and I would share it with job seekers one by one, but I'm like, I should just put this on a website. And yeah, it had job listings from day one, but, um, but back in 2008, 2009, or whenever you started the job listings, 2010, whenever it was, the world of venture capital jobs was not known. They, they, it was like, you didn't know, like they weren't posted anywhere. And it was like a very closed network. So like, how did you even like start to curate the list? You know, was it just word of mouth? And and then how did it start to evolve and, and, and gain momentum from there? Yeah, so there were enough jobs being publicly posted when, I, when we started to, to really set up a process where every week we would post new, the new jobs we could find. And it was, there was no AI machine learning software or anything like that. It was, I basically, my, it was my virtual assistant who I gave him a document and I said, here are the places you go and look. And when you find the jobs, you, you basically post them. <laughs> and so that that's really how it, it started. And the other way that I would source job opportunities is because the blog became known for a place where VC jobs were posted, I would get inbound from firms. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it would be, hey, we're not ready to post this, but do you know anyone? It would be that kind of thing. Sure. And it would also be folks who are saying, hey, we have this job. Can you post it on your blog? Because we want to get more people to, to see it. So, so that was, was kind of the beginning of the, the job posting, building that machine, if you will. And that continues today. And now, like you were alluding to, there's there's actually a lot more quantity-wise jobs out there. I would I would also say that there's still what I would call like sort of the hidden VC job market, which is there's firms who they never post jobs, but you'll see them hire people, right? So mm -hmm. like clearly those are folks that are getting uh, sometimes recruiters who are going out and sourcing candidates for that. But other times it's it's very much just that informal networking where the people who know they want to break into venture capital know that they their their sort of best shot is to figure out how can I get a connection into someone at that firm and and start a, a conversation. Interesting, because to like map out the different roles in venture, right? Titles can vary, right? But if we had to kind of use the the typical, it's like associate, senior associate, and maybe principal, and then there's obviously the track of a, you know, becoming a partner, general partner. And then there's the platform, like that didn't exist years ago. I mean, they, they there used to be like a talent partner at some firms, like Highland has one, Craig Driscoll, he's a partner now, but, um, you know, Greylock, like different firms had their own ta talent partner, but they didn't have like the platform that they have now with all these added resources for portfolio companies. So what, did I did I get that correct, or is there other pieces of the, you know, titles within VC firms? Yeah, yeah. There's I'd say there's three buckets. One bucket is certainly the platform bucket, which I would say smaller firms. There's like you'll see if they can afford it uh, to, to hire someone that there'll be like one platform person who sort of does it all. They do marketing, they do events, they do some recruiting, they do some portfolio company support. And then at bigger firms, like you mentioned, Highland, uh, certainly Craig uh, Driscoll was, was, was their talent partner. And I guess now as a general partner, my guess is they, they have someone who sort of leads marketing for the firm and also supports portfolio companies from that perspective, et cetera. So that's on the platform side. And then on the investment team side, the, the sort of the most uh, junior, I guess, title you would hear would be analyst. And then you've got associate, senior associate, up through principal, vice president, and then you have I would say a couple of different flavors of partners. And I think the another thing to note around the, 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 the title partner is that as firms, especially some of the mega firms have gotten really big, they 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 actually will will call a lot of people partners. But in reality, from an economics perspective, they they they're they're probably not really close to that. And and it's really the managing partners and the managing general partners that are uh, getting most of the the economics there and then there's a third bucket which is more emerging which isn't really necessarily employees of a firm but 
there's been a proliferation of uh, scouting programs, both informally and formally. And sometimes you'll see scouts, sometimes they'll just say, I'm a scout. Sometimes they won't say anything and they'll be kind of low profile. Uh, and, and sometimes even the term venture partner, you'll see in use, but it's, it's actually not referring to them working for the firm. They're, they're in essence a scout. All right, so you saw you know, this void of, okay, there's these people that are looking to get into venture you know, there's no clear path, you know, you could go to B school, you could exit a company and maybe get pinged by the firm that invested in your company to join. Uh, but there was no real clear cut way to get into venture capital. Yet there's lots of people that aspire to join this industry. So th is that what led you down to starting Going VC? Going VC came out of looking at the, the different needs at the different, I would say, layers of the, of like the VC job searcher stack. So over the years, I had been doing the blog, right? And I, I also built a newsletter and those are ways I could kind of help people at scale, right? I can send an email out, 10,000 people get it, however many people get it, right? And they can, they can take that advice and they can action on it or, or, or not. I also had paid content and courses. So I have a, a book about how to get a job in venture capital. For example, you can buy it on Amazon. I have courses about venture capital job search, about VC interviewing specifically, and those are, are big courses as well. And then I would do one-on-one -on -one coaching with folks who were trying to break in and, and they want a really specific targeted advice about their situation, about their resume, about how they pitch themselves, et cetera. But there was still a, a sort of a gap that I saw. And, and that gap was basically that, you know, I think back to business school and there were, I think three or four max people in my class who were looking to break an adventure. So from a like support network perspective, there like was not one, right? I, I, it was the three of us or four of us, right? And we were all sort of sharing notes and things like that, but it wasn't really a community of folks who could support each other. And in a job search like uh, VC job search, which if you're successful, you're looking at even like a minimum of a year, right? And, and sometimes, uh, you know, many times, right? It, sometimes it doesn't work out, you have to stop, you have to try again a few years later, right? And so going VC really the, the uh, to use the, the, the term minimum viable product, basically what that MVP was is hmm, if we get a VC to hop on to a Zoom or a Hangout with a bunch of folks who are looking to break into VC and in essence that VC can share their career experiences, what they've learned, and then those other folks can, can learn from those and ask questions. Like, is there, is there value there, right, for the, for the candidates? And that was really the start of, of going VC. And it was an experiment um, just, just basically kind of got that rolling pretty, pretty quickly, uh, hired a couple of folks from my email list that, that sort of helped run it. And then what we saw when we were a few cohorts in, we're now about to, depending on when this uh, podcast goes live, we, we actually are probably going to be in the midst of our admissions process for our ninth cohort. Back then, I think we were on maybe cohort two, three or four, something like that. And one of the folks that I was uh, working on it with, in essence, said, "Hey, I think there's a, an actual company here, <laughs> and we should, you know, we should, we should, we should sort of form a, a partnership." And and that's exactly what we did. So, uh, so going VC is a partnership uh, between me and a gentleman named Arno Niazi. Arno is the CEO of Going VC, and I am a co-founder with him. And and so he runs the business day to day and. I really support him across really sort of brand network, right? That I've built over the, the last several years, uh, the corporate development in the sense, not that we're a big $10 billion company going out and buying other companies, but we did do a, a small acquisition of a blog recently, which was a really interesting process. And, and uh, that's a ton of fun for me because I never actually worked on anything like that. So I really try to, to lean into into those areas and also some of the educational content, uh, depending on on what the, the, the specifics are around that. Because it's a 16 week program that we do. And so each week there's like a specific piece of educational content 
uh, and I, I actually, not surprisingly, focus on, uh, we have a module around personal branding and how to build an audience and use that as a way to kind of attract folks in terms of either VCs who you might want to work for, or more importantly, entrepreneurs who would really be interested in that in terms of trying to evaluate you as an investor and someone they might, they might want to work with. And that, so the cohort, like over that 16 weeks, well, like what can they expect to learn? You kind of gave a couple examples and then what happens after the, after the program wraps up? Yeah, sure. And, and the program has multiple components. I, I, I initially was, was talking about when we got it started, it was basically putting VCs on hangouts with, with folks in the, in the program and there really wasn't much else. And this is again, five, uh, yeah, crazy to say about five years ago. What it is now is we're combining community, career services, educational content, and these live educational opportunities, and we've kind of wrapped them all together. So in the 16-week, uh, in a 16-week cohort, you're getting each of those weeks, you're getting specific educational content and a live session to match that's led by a VC, or, or sometimes it it it, it actually it's not a VC because a VC wouldn't be the best person. So like it might be a venture lawyer if you're talking about term sheets, right? Things like that. So each of those 16 weeks, you're getting one of these components. There's also uh, a Slack group, which is internal only to going VC members and alumni. So that's really a lot of where the, uh, really seeing the community in action and people really helping people connect with opportunities, sharing, hey, I heard this firm is hiring or, hey, I'm interviewing with this firm. Can you give me some background on them or do you know anyone there, right? That stuff kind of happens all the time. And we have this like critical mass now in energy because all of these folks, they've either gone through it or they're going through it in terms of breaking into venture capital. So that's really that support network that I talked about that I never really had. And then we have a career services team that helps out in terms of tapping our database when a firm is hiring and figuring out are there candidates either in the current program or in the alumni who would be good fits for these firms that are hiring and trying to make those connections and then helping with things like resume reviews, things like that are also part of what our career services team does now. And, and going VC itself, it's, I know a lot of the, the time just because the blog and the newsletter, and I've been doing that for years, people sort of look at going VC and say, hey, hey you know, this is, this is sort of the, like a John Gannon program, but in reality, we have a whole team. I don't know the exact number now, but we've got upwards of 15 to 20 people working on the business, either full-time or part-time. So there's just like a tremendous group of folks who are like spending a ton of time to make this program great and to add value across all those different areas. And then you get the scale now of, we have over 300 members and alumni all around the world. And they're working at a variety of different venture firms, some more emerging and some more that you may have heard of folks like uh, we have alumni from places like 500 startups and CRV and Floodgate, for example. And then once the, they do wrap up, like the, the career services part, like is there like uh, VCs that are interviewing folks coming out of the going VC program? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And one of the big value adds that we deliver in terms of, of really helping them get their foot in the door is now because the community has grown to such scale and also from my own personal network in venture over the last 10 plus years, but we, we are able to, in, 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 in many cases, actually have a connection at a firm that is hiring. Mm -hmm. And so we do our best to really closely curate the the candidates that are interested in a certain role and, and, and have the background that, that sort of makes sense for the firm. And, and basically figuring out, you know, what's sort of the right pitch or the right angle to present these folks to the firm. And that's resulted in, in, in interviews and, and, and connections from that perspective. So I think that that piece is, it's 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 sort of bundling in stuff that the candidates need to do anyway in terms of figuring out how do I get in front of firms, right? And so that's something we we can help with. But there's a fine balance. Um, you know, the incentives could be such where we're like, you know, we're just like spamming people, which we don't do, right? We're very careful that we are getting the right. And you're you know, we have a recruiting background, so you get this right. We we really want to make sure 
hey, these are two or three folks that are we think are awesome for this position. Here's why, and, and would you like to talk to them? And we don't charge for that pairing either. Um, the people in Going VC, they, they pay a, a fee and they have lifetime membership. So they go through the cohort and then they have lifetime membership and they can continue to take advantage of all these, these different benefits. But we, we actually don't uh, charge anything to the VCs. So this is a, kind of a complete free service to them. I think another thing that people don't understand is like, a, you know, compensation. Like what, what is it that VCs are earning at that analyst, associate, senior associate? You know, I'm sure the partners, general partner, managing general partner, it's, you know, depends on the firm and their outcome and success. But uh, if you're coming in at that, you know, more what we'll call entry level in a venture capital firm, like what are the general salary ranges? Yeah, it, it, it really depends on the, the size of the firm. So a firm like we talked about Highland, for example, that's a firm with at this point billions under management. And so, as you know, the way the venture sort of fund model works is that typically there's a, a 2% management fee, right? That's, that's being charged against those assets. And so that's where the salaries come from. And so what you will see is that the larger firms will, will just be able to pay more because that management fee is, is higher. Whereas maybe a small fund that is getting started and it's like a $10 million fund, they, they may actually not have any money to pay anyone, right? The partners might not even be taking money. As to specific ranges, there's a post on my blog. If you search for in Google venture capital salary survey and, and put my name there too, John Gannon, then you'll uh, it should be the first thing that shows up in Google. It'll actually show for anyone listening, we publish some of the data from the venture capital salary survey that I do every year. We have a full report that respondents do get and it breaks it down, a very detailed graph charts, you know, kind of anything you want. Uh, but as a service to the community, some of the summary data we do put on that that post. So I definitely encourage folks to to take a look there. And then what can someone expect? Because I've seen people that they do almost like their tour of duty and they go back to operating or they start a company or uh, it's like, you know, two years, three, four year stint. And then there's others that end up on this partner track and they end up becoming a partner at the firm. So what? how does that vary? Is it just based on uh, your performance as a VC? Is it based on your own personal just kind of inclination of what you want to do professionally or is it kind of very? Some firms will be very blunt and say, hey, this is a two years and out type yeah. program. Mm -hmm. And they'll expect you to go back to business school or join a portfolio company or maybe start your own thing. So that's very, very common. And then there's also folks who, like you said, work their way through the ranks. And my sense is that it's really, if you're, if you're in that role, if you're performing well, you will perhaps get invited to stick around and, and kind of grow with the firm. And, and what it comes down to, I think, is very simply, do they think you can make them money or not, right, based on your deal flow and, and things like that? Uh, I know you, you, you know the, the folks at NextView Ventures, They've, they've written some really good stuff recently that I would highly encourage folks to, to check out around uh, actually being a, someone who is early career in venture and, and sort of the things you need to think about if you want to climb the ranks. And uh, so Dave and, and Rob specifically have been working on that. And I, I don't have the name. I'm sure you could put it in the show notes, but they, they actually have a new Substack that's like fantastic. And it's exactly on that topic. So I'd highly recommend folks who are thinking about, hey, I just want to actually climb the ladder once I'm in. It's a, it's a great set of resources. All right. So what are some uh, books or podcasts that you recommend out there? Other than the VentureFist podcast, of course. Oh, and then you have your own podcast too. You got you to gotta promote that. <laughs> yeah. So there's the Going VC podcast. And, and I have uh, exactly 0% to do with that podcast. We have an amazing team who is 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 running that and i was i was actually super excited a few weeks ago because i actually got to be a guest like i hadn't been i was like i think guest number eight or nine or something so that was a ton of fun to join the team but the, the podcast is really focused on trying to get some different voices in to to the mix and folks who are coming from a variety of different backgrounds geographies very similar to, to going vc and sort of how we think about things in terms of like wanting to sort of equalize venture from a perspective of different backgrounds, different geographies, et cetera. So 
yeah, going VC podcast, you can find it on uh, your favorite podcast player. Uh, and then other podcasts, uh, there, there's some that everyone's heard of, so I won't talk about those, but um, there's um, uh, Noah Kagan has an excellent podcast. He's an online marketer, started a company called App, AppSumo. He's, he's done a bunch of stuff. He is someone who just uh, is really entertaining how he delivers the, the messaging that he's delivering and it's very educational and I just really look forward to it. The, uh, another one that folks probably have not heard of is it's called the smart passive income podcast. It's by this guy named Pat Flynn, who's like a longtime influencer, I would say in the, the space around, uh, entrepreneurship and, and small business and, and creating passive income streams. And the thing I like about that podcast is he will interview folks from all these different uh, niches and like totally random stuff. Like not, it, it's not all tech. And I really like that one a lot. And then the last one I mentioned is, is fairly popular. Folks may have heard of it. It's Indie Hackers. So Stripe purchased Indie Hackers. So technically I guess it's Stripe, but uh, Cortland's always got folks on talking about these really small businesses, right? Maybe they're doing five, 10K a month in, in revenue and just like really interesting ideas and, and things that these folks are building. So I'd love to hear those stories because I, I kind of consider myself one of them in a sense that that a lot of this or all this stuff, right? It's been completely bootstrapped. There's never been any outside funding. It's just kind of been, been ground up. So love to hear those stories and always inspires me, gives me new ideas. Well, you're very busy. We've highlighted that. Uh, but when you do have opportunities outside of the, you know, the work stuff, what do you like to do? Yeah. Specific to this uh, season of the year, I, I coach my daughter's softball team. And that is, uh, it's extremely rewarding. And it's like so different than what I spend most of my time on. So when I'm on the field, just my, a lot of my brain just kind of disengages and another part turns on and I can just really focus on that. And I just have a ton of fun with it. It's, uh, it's stressful because you, you know, you want to see the girls do well, but at the same time, it's a nice, it's a nice mental break from a lot of the other things that I, that I work on. And it's a great way as I get older, it's harder to find things to spend time with them on. Right. And so if I'm going to a couple games in a practice every week, you know, that's, uh, that's a few hours that I'm, I'm able to spend with them, which is, which is awesome. And fortunately with the things I work on, I, I do have a good amount of control over my time and sort of where I spend it. I mean, I'm definitely working a lot in aggregate, but I can sort of choose one. So it works out pretty well from that perspective. Well, where should people go and get more information about going VC, your blog, the VC jobs, like where, where should people go? Yeah. Yeah. There's two places. Uh, goingvc.com is the place where you can get a variety of, of resources and also learn more about the 16 uh, week cohort based program that I talked about. And then johngannonblog.com is, is the one that has been around since 2008. We've got posting probably over a hundred new VC jobs a month. And then the, the newsletter, you can subscribe there as well. And newsletter now close to 20,000 folks on that. So, and I'm emailing it every week. Uh, even if I don't feel up to it now, it's such a habit. I just, uh, I have to do it. I have to get it out. So I can relate. I can relate. It's uh, you know, every <laughs> Monday, there's an email that goes out. It's been going out for she's 11 years now. And it's like, you know, you have, I do have someone that helps me. Dan's amazing. He pulls a lot of it together. So it's uh, not as much of a chore every weekend, but uh, you know, it still takes that, that time of commitment because people now do expect you on their inbox at nine 15 every, every Monday. Yeah. There's something to be said about regular delivery and regular people get used to it, right? They kind of expect it. And it, it's uh, it's good because you feel weird if you don't do it. Right. And then you're just like, you're locked in. You're just going to yeah. do it every week. It's like no yeah. question. Yeah. Well, John, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background, which was a interesting story in itself. But obviously, thanks for all the transparency and information that you're sharing about the venture capital industry, because I read a blog post, I don't know, that it's like, it's actually harder to get a venture capital job than it is to become a professional athlete. So I don't know if that was accurate or not, but it's it's one of these industries that uh, is very tough to break into. So, for, so thanks for all that you and your team does. Keith, thanks. I, I really appreciate it. And, and 
this is stuff that for many years I I, I just did because I, I loved it and I still love it. It's just uh, over the years, it's, it's it's sort of grown a bit into something that can help even more people. So just feeling really grateful. And thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. This is a lot of fun for me to, to share this. And the questions are are things that I haven't even thought about for a while. So it was really cool to see you dig into my background and pull some of those out. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.